Well, if today is your first time with us at Woodside, a warm welcome to you. We're glad to have you here. If you're joining us online, welcome as well. We're glad that you can tune in and be with us as we worship and celebrate all that Jesus has done. This is one of those great things, especially with baptism, is it gives us that tangible expression to see what it is that Jesus has done in the life of someone. Just like also tomorrow being Martin Luther King Day, it's an opportunity to look at the life and legacy of an individual who's, no one's perfect, but yet God used this man to create such change and impact in our society and in our nation. And so I want to encourage you, uh, inside your bulletin today, there's a little insert about Martin Luther King Day and just ways as believers we can continue to engage in this world with the hope and the message of Jesus to communicate his grace, to communicate his love to other people. And that's what we're about as a church. We want to make sure that people know who Jesus is. Because oftentimes in society and in our world, we can lose track of that. Even as a church, a church can lose track of what its mission really is meant to be all about. If you were with us last week, Pastor Jim started off our series looking at the book of 1 Timothy. I'm obviously not Pastor Jim. I still have a little bit of hair left on my head, which is nice. Um, but my name's Alex, if I don't know you yet. And uh, I'm one of the pastors here at this campus, and I get to continue us in this journey through the book of 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of 1 Timothy. <clears throat> in the book of 1 Timothy, what it actually is, let's see if my voice doesn't give away. What the book of 1 Timothy actually is, it's a letter. The Apostle Paul, who maybe you're familiar with, uh, the Apostle Paul started to plant churches and help uh, establish churches in what's known today as kind of like the Middle Eastern region. And he started and helped establish the church in Ephesus. And he left that church, but he left someone behind, Timothy. So 1 Timothy is his letter to his disciple, to the guy that Paul spent a long time with, kind of training in the gospel, training him in how to lead and shepherd people, training him in how to combat the things of society and culture. And at some point, Paul receives word about things that were going on in the church of Ephesus. And it was so extreme that Paul pins this letter to his disciple, to Timothy, to encourage him, to challenge him, to remind him, hey, this is why you are still there. This is why I need you here, right? But Paul didn't just write that one letter to Timothy in regards to the church of Ephesus. He also wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus. Anybody know what that letter is titled and called? Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, okay? When you read the book of Ephesians, right, it's a letter that Paul sent to the church herself. When you read that letter, and then you read the letter that Paul sends to Timothy, what you begin to see is a lot of similarities and common themes and kind of the same structure that Paul's trying to communicate to both the church and to Timothy. You see, what was going on in the city of Ephesus, historians believe that at the point in time when Paul wrote his letters there, that the city was kind of falling into disarray. It was a cultural hub, it was a high place of commerce, but things were just slowly kind of backtracking a little bit. And the city of Ephesus was also a central place of pagan worship. It was a place where Greeks would go to worship the goddess Diana. 
She had a temple there, and that was a bug. <clears throat> and hopefully it's not a sign. Um, and what they would do is they would practice and they would worship Diana by doing sexually immoral things. And everybody was okay with it. At the same time, the city of Ephesus, not only were there Greeks, but there were also Jews. And these Jews were individuals who grew up as a Jew, who knew the Old Testament back and forth. And at some point in their life, they heard the message of Jesus and they responded in faith that this Jesus is who he says that he is. That Jesus really is the son of God, that Jesus really did die on the cross and then rose from the grave three days later. These Jews converted into Christianity. The same for some of these Greeks who would have been around the mythologies, who would have been around the uh, worship of Diana and all the other Greek gods. They heard this message of Jesus. They responded to it in faith and they became believers. They converted. And then what happens with all these converted believers? Paul helps them organize and come together as a church and they were the church of Ephesus, right? Pastor Jim talked about this last week. It wasn't as if in the city of Ephesus that there was a church on every street corner. There was one church. In this one church, perhaps they met in smaller groups together throughout the week, perhaps kind of like, I don't know, a life group um, where they would gather together and they would encourage one another in their faith. They would encourage one another like, hey, how is your business doing? Hey, how are you reaching people? Hey, how are you combating the things of culture in our city? And how are you continuing to hold fast to the gospel? And this is really what we see Paul doing here in this uh, first chapter of his letter. And again, Paul didn't write in chapters. These letters, these books that we have, we translate them and we put them into chapters so that we have a little bit of structure to them but this is all just one continuous thought and letter that paul writes and so as he's doing this he starts off the letter we saw last week just reminding timothy like hey all of this is because of god all of this this church what we do all of it is his right paul is not the head of the church of ephesus jesus is Jesus is the chief elder. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Jesus is the senior pastor. But God, in his mercy, has appointed us as leaders, and we are going to submit to him as we lead the church in accordance to what his will and desires are. And that's Paul, that's his motive to write the letter, to begin the letter with, to remind Timothy, hey, let's remember where we are. And then he starts to get into the meat of things. Paul is not one to kind of waste his time when he's writing. He's very meticulous. He's very thoughtful in what it is he's trying to communicate and how it is that he communicates it to us. So open your Bibles with me, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want to read for you just the first two verses, starting at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus... So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Anybody ever get emails that maybe sound and seem a little contentious and you're like, I don't know what tone this sentence is saying right now. 
Are they happy with me or are they mad at me? Did I do a really good thing with my job or did I just completely screw everything up? Anybody ever struggle with that with emails, right? We lose a lot of tone and we lose a lot of emotion. We lose a lot of um, just meaning whenever all we do is look at texts. But when we look at this, remember, this is a letter. What is Paul doing? Right off the bat, hey, as I urged you when I left you in Ephesus, when I was on my way to Macedonia, charge certain people not to teach false doctrines. Charge them not to devote themselves to myths and genealogies. Paul's very clear up front. He's very objective. Hey, here are the things that I need you to not do, and here are the things I need you to do in this moment and in this church. He's showing them. He's showing Timothy, hey, let me remind you what it is that you are charged with doing. That word charged, when you look at it in the Greek, it's what was used most of the time in uh, a military style, okay? It's a duty. It's a responsibility. It is, hey, you signed up. This is what I am charging you to do. You are meant to fulfill these expectations. That word charged carries with it a lot of weight, it's not just some haphazard like, oh, like if you feel like it today, I want you just to remind people to, you know, teach sound doctrine. No, it's this charge. It's this weightiness behind this is what it is that you are meant to do. Ensure that they are not teaching false doctrines. But instead, what is it that he wants them to teach? What is it that he wants them to to do all right jump down with me to verse 5 the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith verse 6 certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions the title of our message today is Hold Fast the Gospel. Hold Fast to the Gospel. What is the Gospel? What is this good news? That word gospel in the Greek literally means good news. So what is this good news? Tiffany read it for us earlier this morning from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 2. This is the good news. This is what is truth about Jesus, that in his love and his mercy for you, he died for you. Not because of anything good that you have done, but simply because of his great love and mercy for you. And this is not something that you earn. This is not something that because of your ethnicity or because of your background or because of your maybe future potential that Jesus is like, oh, I'm going to save you because you're going to do great things for me. No, 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 no. It's none of that. It's simply the goodness and the mercy of Jesus. And how do we receive this gift and how do we respond to this gift? We simply believe and confess that Jesus is who he says that he is and that he died on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose again, conquering death on my behalf. That is the good news. That is the good news. Paul wants the church to hold fast to this gospel, to this good news. 
because there are men in the church who are teaching false doctrine, who are focusing on genealogies and myths, and they are uh, swerving away from what is sound and what is truth. Have you ever been to a church where you're sitting there in those seats and you're like, what in the smokes are they talking about here? Hopefully that's not here. But have you ever been in a church like that where you're like, it kind of sounds like they're talking about Jesus, but they're not even saying his name. Or have you ever listened to a podcast or a preacher online and you're like, <clears throat> they sound like they're believers. They say some Christianese language. They use big churchy words. But something's not quite right. Something's a little off. Do you have any of those in your mind right now? Can I get some head nods? Yeah? Okay. So what we want to do, though, when we find ourselves in those moments, when we find ourselves in those situations, when we hear some things that they maybe kind of sound like gospel, they maybe kind of sound churchy or Christian-y or biblical, but they're a little off. What is it that we are supposed to respond with? How is it that we're supposed to interpret this? Right, Paul kind of gives us a little bit of a filter here. If you look back at verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. What the Apostle Paul is trying to remind Timothy is, is that, hey, everything that happens in this church should start from a place of love so that faith and love can continue to abound. It should start from this place, this motivation, this drive of love. If what it is that you're hearing or what it is that you've heard is divisive, is bringing about divisions amongst believers, then maybe there's something off with it. <clears throat> and to be divisive is not just simply like you disagreeing with something, right? Because there's going to be things that you hear in church. There's going to be things maybe that you read in the scriptures, that maybe your first reaction to it is you're like, wait, really? I kind of disagree with that because this doesn't seem really like, this doesn't fall in line with my view of who God is. But this is where we as believers, where the duty is on us, where we have to look into God's word and say, what does God's word actually say about this? And oftentimes, it's not just one singular verse. If you ever come across a denomination or a church or a speaker and they build their entire theology, their understanding of God off of one verse, be very, very cautious. Because what we see in the scriptures from Genesis all the way through Revelation is we see one overarching story of God's desire to redeem his creation and his people. And what he does throughout the story of the Jews, throughout the story of Jesus, throughout the story of the early church beginning and all of the prophets in the Old Testament, is there's consistent theme and this consistent charge 
Do you know who I am? Are you following me? Are you submitting to me? Are you obeying me? Are you listening to me? Do you see that I'm in front of you and I want to save you and I want to redeem you and I want to give you eternity of peace with me? But oftentimes what can happen is we'll take one or two verses and we'll build our entire understanding of who God is just off of those singular things and we throw away everything else that's in the scriptures. So whatever is divisive, whatever it is that is causing division in the church, whatever it is that's causing this sense of unrest, is that really sound doctrine? Is it really something that's based out of a heart and a desire of love? We have to hold the gospel so that faith and love abound. Let's think about it a little practically, right? Everything we do here at Woodside Lake Orient, is based out of this mindset and this foundation of what is it to love well? What is it to love Jesus well? What is it to love others well? What is it to glorify God in all that we do? So from the songs that we pick and and sing on Sunday mornings, do these songs magnify Jesus? Do these songs talk about his goodness? Do these songs glorify God in all that God has done? Or are the songs more focused on our needs and what we need and what we want. Everything we do in our kids' ministry, do we just babysit your kids for an hour? No. We do not babysit your children. We're intentional. We think through, we process, we plan, we say, what is it today that we are going to impart to our kids that's based in Scripture so that they may turn their eyes towards God to say, hey, This is interesting about God. God wants us to live courageously. What does that look like and how do I do that according to God's word? Let's teach that in the context of kids. Everything in our students, yes, even doing uh, pie eating competition and the disgusting things that happen on Wednesday nights here in this building, all of those things are meant to create an opportunity for kids to feel loved and for teens to interact with other teens, but most importantly, for us to communicate to them on their level, this is the love that Jesus has for you. For the messages that we preach on a Sunday morning, we want to stay true to what God's word says. And sometimes, guess what that means we have to do? Step on your toes a little bit. To love someone really well does not mean that you avoid conflict and confrontation. But to love someone really well means that you're willing to confront. You're willing to have that conflict. Because the truth is what matters more than that person's feelings. And that's a difficult thing. Okay, don't get me wrong. That's not some easy thing. It's a difficult thing to do. Especially when there's a person up here standing and saying these things. You're not necessarily interacting with that person except for this one guy over here on my left. But we do this and we stay true to God's word because you have to hear the truth. We have to hold fast. We have to ensure that love and sincere faith abounds in all things that we do as a church. For the church of Ephesus, they'd gotten away from that. Whatever these myths and genealogies were, whatever these false teachings and vain discussions they were having was detracting them from what it is that they were called to do and be as a church. And what is it that we're called to do and be as a church? Let's keep going, okay? 
Look at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is laid down for the just, for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Let's stop right there for a moment. We begin to see what's really going on here in this church of Ephesus. It's talking about the law. So more than likely what's occurring is that the leaders of this church are focusing in on what is known as the law. What is the law? The Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament would be considered to be the law. What it did was it showed the Jews how it was that they were meant to live. It showed the Jews what God expected of them and how they were meant to be set apart from the rest of society by following all of these rules and all of these laws. But even in the midst of God giving them all of these rules and laws to follow, God still told them, you are not going to do this well. You're not going to be able to keep the whole law. <clears throat> so here's what I'm going to do for you. Once a year, I want you to go take a lamb that's just a few months old. Take a lamb, bring it to the temple, give it to the priest. And what will happen in that moment is that all of the ways that you've broken the law, all of those sins will be placed on that lamb. And that lamb will be slaughtered and burned before me. And my wrath towards you, my discipline towards you, will be appeased for a moment. And so what the Jews did was they created their lives around how do we continue to live out these laws and how do we add to those laws to make sure that we're super duper righteous in everything that we do? How do we continue to abide by the law and follow this so that we can be found to be completely clean and pure and holy? And when we mess up, Yes, we'll still go, we'll still take the lamb, we'll still sacrifice it. But something that the Jews missed was in the Old Testament, there are numerous prophecies that talk about God saying, there are not enough lambs for you to offer as a sacrifice to me. This is what I really need. I need a broken and contrite heart. I need you, my followers, my believers, those who I'm calling to, I need you to respond to me in faith. And one day, I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send a Messiah. And he's going to come and he's going to give you the ultimate rescue. He's going to be the ultimate lamb. Where every sin of every person who believes will be made null. If you believe in him, if you believe in this Messiah, your sins will forever and ever be forgiven. And all you simply have to do is believe and confess. And that's who Jesus was. We have to hold fast to the gospel because the whole point of the church and the whole point of the gospel is so that sinners might be saved. The church is not your social needs club. The church is not a place for you to learn how to interact with other individuals. The church is not a place for you to find a Mr. or Mrs. But if that happens, that's cool. 
The church is not a place for you to retreat to, to live inside your bubble and to eat your Chick-fil-A in peace and feel like, oh, the world is totally fine because I'm with my Jesus chicken, I'm with my Jesus friends, I'm listening to my Jesus music, and all things in my life are good. And I can't wait to drive home and listen to K-Love. Like, that's not the point of the church. Are those things terrible in and of themselves? No, those are great things. If the church is a place of refuge for you, if it is a place of retreat for you, praise God for that. If you have found your lifelong friends here at church, if you found your spouse while attending church, if you find a sense of peace and calmness in a crazy world, praise God for the church. But it doesn't stop there. We have a charge. We have a mission. We have a duty as believers. What was one of the last things that Jesus told his disciples before he left? There was something he told them to do. Go and make houses of worship so that you can play sweet rock music with haze and laser lights. And it'll be a glorious, you know, experience for all who are involved. And people will feel really good when they leave. That happens. It's not terrible stuff. No, he said, go therefore and make disciples teaching them everything that I have taught you. Baptize them. And remember, I am with you through the ends of the age. There's a mission that we're supposed to be on as believers. There's a mission that we're meant to follow, to go and make disciples, to go and share this good news, this gospel message with people around us. So when you come into the building on a Sunday morning, let's say, the songs we pick, we do it intentionally because we want to communicate God's love for you if you don't know God's love yet. The messages we preach, we choose to preach so that we can communicate God's love for you if you don't know that love yet. What we do in kids, what we do in students, what we do in our outreach ministries, what we do in our life groups, all of these things start with the desire to say we want people to know the love of God. Because we know that not everybody who sits in this room, even right now this morning, believes in Jesus. And we love it that you're here. We're not afraid of you. We're not afraid of your sins. We're not afraid of your past. We're not afraid of what you did last night and then you showed up this morning because you felt guilt and shame. And you're like, I gotta go somewhere to get me out of this place of feeling. We are meant to go and share this good news because the gospel saves sinners and all of us are sinners. But the apostle Paul would claim that he is the foremost and the worst sinner of all. Let's look back here at 1 Timothy chapter one, starting at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
I know a lot of you here in the church. I know a lot of your sins. Some of you know a lot of my sins. But I don't think any of us here in this church have quite the rap sheet that the Apostle Paul had. Before he, before he was saved, he was known as Saul of Tarsus, right? And what Saul did as a Jew, as a Jewish Pharisee, as a Jewish religious leader, is he would go town to town to town, finding other Jews who converted to Christianity, and he would have them drug out into the street and stoned because of their faith. Did anybody do that last night? No. Saul repetitively, continuously went after believers and persecuted them, had them killed, would do whatever he could to break up church gatherings. The dude was not a great dude. He thought he was because he thought he was living righteously according to the law. He thought he was dealing with things in the way that the law instructed him to deal with it. But in a moment, when he's on the road, he's struck by a vision, and it's Jesus looking at him saying, why are you persecuting me? Do you not know who I am? Behold, this is who I am. And in that moment, his heart is forever changed. You see, what the law did the law showed people how to live, but it didn't transform their hearts. It just showed them how to play the game. What Jesus does is he looks past the laws and he looks at the condition of our hearts and he says, do you really believe in who I am? If you do, confess me and I will transform you from the inside out. So when people come into our church on Sunday mornings, maybe they look different. Maybe they smell different. Maybe you know them from the community and you know the type of reputation that they have. What is our first instinct when we see these type of individuals? Do we welcome them? Do we say, man, we're so glad you're here? Or do we try to usher them out of the church? Part of the problem we have in America today is that churches are known for being hypocritical, judgmental places. Because when people go to the church with their sins, oftentimes the church can just turn that person completely away. Instead of looking at that individual and saying, yeah, your life is rife with sin, but so is mine. But by the grace and mercy of Jesus, he offers forgiveness and he offers hope. So why don't you come? Why don't you sit down? Why don't you engage with people? Listen to our message. And then let's go to coffee the next day. And let's talk about what Jesus is doing in your heart and in your life. The gospel, we hold fast to that because Jesus came to save sinners. And church, that's what we have to be about. We can't be afraid of the world around us. We can't be afraid of other people's sins. We confront those sins in love, which sometimes means we have to say truths that will hurt their feelings. But so long as they are the gospel truth, that they are in accordance with scripture, you say those things out of love. What you're doing right now, according to the eyes of God, is sinful. 
and he doesn't want you to keep doing it. Will you repent? Will you ask God for mercy? And let me walk with you as you find your way out of this life of lawlessness and disobedience. And why is this important? Look at verse 16. But I received mercy. This is Paul talking. I received mercy for this very reason. That in me, as the foremost sinner, as the worst of them all, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Believers, don't forget your testimony. Don't forget the reason it is that you needed to be saved. Because that, that moment, the reality of who you are, God wants to use it for his purposes. Oftentimes, being a pastor, there are moments where you kind of feel this like righteous pride. I think you're allowed to have righteous pride, and we'll find out later. But there's these moments when you're just super proud of things that are happening in your church. There's a new couple that is here, and they were sharing with me how they went and they were invited to dinner with another couple. And at this dinner, this new couple and the other couple began to just share testimonies. And for this newer couple that was seeking to understand if this is the church home, if this is the family of believers that they are called to be in, what they were able to do is they were able to hear another couple share a very similar testimony of their individual lives and of their marriages. And for this new couple, what it did for them was it said, these people here at this church are real. These people here at this church know truly the mercy and the grace of Jesus. I want to interact with people like this on a more regular basis. Because they're not just playing the game. They're not just showing up, checking a box that we went to church today. But they're here and they're growing in their faith and they're learning more about Jesus and his plan for them. So the pride came about because here is another couple who have a testimony that if people shared, if any person else, if anybody else had this type of testimony and they shared it from the stage, there would be gasps, there would be questions, there would be, are you serious? But yet the mercy of Jesus playing out in their lives is what is glorified and what God used for this new couple to be like, this is where I want to be. We're not afraid of sin. Jesus is not afraid of your sin. If Jesus would rescue and redeem a man like Saul of Tarsus, where he would change his name to Paul and he would basically start the church movement, why would Jesus not save you? How bad really is your sin? And the last thing that the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy, stop jumping into all this random stuff that everybody in the church wants to go down, but remember everything starts from a place of love so that we can have faith and love abounding as a church. Also, let's not forget the fact that the gospel is about saving sinners, not making Christians feel good about their life. 
And then lastly, let's do all of this because there is a danger. We hold fast to the gospel so we don't shipwreck our lives. So we don't shipwreck our lives. Look at the very end. He kind of throws this right here at the end. This charge I entrust to you, starting at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, though, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's a warfare going on. There's a battle that's happening. And if we don't engage, if we're not proactive in our faith, if we're not progressing forward in our pursuit of holiness, if we're not moving the ball forward in our relationship with Jesus, what can end up happening is we get buried and buried and buried by all of the opposing forces around us that want us to focus on things in this world that ultimately Jesus is like, don't get all bent out of shape about that. It's okay that your president's not a believer. It's okay that your local governments don't follow Christian values. It's okay that your friend didn't like and share your post of, if you believe in Jesus, like and share this post, otherwise you'll be judged. Like, it's okay, all of these things out here, because I'm still in control. And I need you to stay focused on me and doing what it is I've called you to do. Love me. Love people. Share the gospel with those people and honor God with your life. And that requires work. It requires effort. It requires a certain level of us choosing to hold fast to the gospel. It's not a passive thing. Your faith should never be passive. It should always be proactive. It should always be moving forward. Because if it's not, what will end up happening is you will shipwreck your life. You will be about things that ultimately Jesus is not concerned about. You will be about things that ultimately Jesus looks at and says, why are you giving all of your energy into this? Instead, learn and know how to be my disciples. Learn and know how to love people well. Learn and know how to share the gospel with people. There's this word that we don't talk a whole lot about, evangelism. Oh, that word? That's for those paid employees of the church. That's what they're supposed to go do. That's why they go to Starbucks every single day of the week and just talk to people about Jesus. That's not what we do, y'all. <laughs> but it's what all of us should be doing as believers in Jesus. So, church, hold fast to the gospel. If you're here today and you're like, I have no idea what the gospel is. He keeps saying this word gospel. Come talk to me. Find somebody else here in the church. Say, hey, what really is the good news? Because I don't know if I believe. If you do believe, and maybe you've been sitting on the sidelines for a little too long, maybe it's time to buckle up. And let's get after it. 
Because there's a world out there. There's a lot of churches out there. There are a lot of believers out there who are headed towards a shipwreck. Because they've lost sight of what the gospel truly is all about. Jesus' great love and mercy for us. That he paid the debt for our sins. And that because of that, we can live in freedom. We can live with peace today and for all eternity. And it's our charge and our duty to go and share this good news with everyone around us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that at moments it's so applicable. God, forgive us of the times that we overcomplicate things in our walk with you. Forgive us of the times that we make the small things the most important things. And ultimately, Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy that's undeserved. Thank you that you don't call us to clean our lives up and then put our faith in you, but instead, in the midst of our dirtiness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of all of the things that we do that don't honor you, that's when you come to us, that's when you call us, that's when you reach down and you say, I have something different for you. Believe in me, trust me, follow me. So Jesus, wherever people are at this morning, would you continue to be faithful to them? Show them your truth. Show them your desires for their life. And help them, Lord, to know what it is to be obedient to you. We love you, Jesus. May our love for you continue to grow. Pray all this in your name. Amen.